You're listening to a DM podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Heroes and Howlers. It's me, Mikey Robbins, and my mate, Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Look, we're both still a couple of history tragics, but this season, it's not just us doing the heavy lifting. That's right, Mikey. This season, we've got special guests picking out their very own heroes. And howlers. (laughs) Yeah, we're still on the lookout for those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. And we're still uncovering the cock-ups, those moments of madness that have made the world what it is today. But now we've got backup. And together, we'll be turning history back to front and back again. Hi guys, it's Paul and Mikey here on our summer holidays. Got some classics for you to listen to. And don't forget, we're already lining up guests for next year. G'day folks, and today we're off to the Indian subcontinent, so we're definitely in your wheelhouse here, Paulie. <laughs> yeah. Now, we're going to be talking religion, and we're going to be talking a female hero. That's right. We're talking about Sikhism as the religion. We're talking about a woman called Matar Kivi uh, as my female hero today. But I suppose we probably need to start off with the religion. Let's go back to the beginning of the faith. They're talking around 1500, and a guy called Guru Nanak. Now, you're talking 1500. That's 1500 in the common era. So that would make Sikhism one of the most modern large religions in the world. Very much so, Mikey, because at the time, obviously in India you've got Hinduism and you've got Islam, but this is a new religion, and Guru Nanak's teaching is all about harmony and integration rather than division. And it's this ethos that will go on to build the Sikh faith, and it's built through a series of gurus, ten in fact, who follow Guru Nanak's teachings and to develop the faith to grow mostly in the northern parts of India. And I say northern parts, Mikey, because that's important, because the fifth guru, Guru Arjan, he establishes Amritsar in the Punjab state as a capital, a de facto capital, for Sikhism. And he's the one who builds the famous Golden Temple. I've heard of that, yeah. yeah, That we, we know about as the holiest site for Sikhism. And he's also the guru who draws up the first Sikh scripture, the Adi Granth. So what you're saying, Paulie, and this sounds strange for a religion, it's all going swimmingly well? <laughs> well, yeah, it starts off on a strong foot, but unfortunately, in some ways, it's maybe too strong because it's very quickly seen as a threat by the existing rival religious authorities, the existing powers that be, because, of course, by this stage, we don't just have the Hindu Brahmins in India, you also have the whole Islamic setup, which has arrived as part of the new Mughal Empire and taken over much of the subcontinent at pretty much the exact same time. Right, of course, and so they're not too keen on this new sect muscling in. Precisely. So much so, in fact, that this guru, Arjan, the fifth guru, he's actually executed in 1606 as part of a major clampdown by the authorities. So the sixth guru, a guy called Hargobind, he starts to militarise the faith. He wants to resist the oppression and he wants to form a real army of Sikhs that can go into battle and carve out their own place in society. Which is interesting, mate, because when, when we think of Sikhs today, we actually think of a military tradition. That's right. So even though it started very much as a peaceful pacifist movement, it does take on these new connotations, particularly under the Mughal emperor, uh, Aurangzeb, because he forces all of his subjects in India to convert and accept Islam. The Sikhs resist, more battles are fought, and the ninth guru, Teg Bahadur, he, like the earlier guru, Guru Arjan, he's arrested by the Mughals, and he's also executed in 1675. 
So, Paulie, at the start you said there were ten gurus, so I'm assuming we've got one more to go. One more to go, that's right. A guy called Gobind Singh, and he really takes the military side of things to the next level. He decides that the Sikhs need to have their army of men and women, interestingly, and he instigates what's known as the Khalsa in 1699. The idea of this is the Sikh army to defend their faith. They establish a series of rites of initiation, which are known as the Kande de Pahul, and they also introduce what we know today as the five Ks, which is the Kesh, the uncut hair that Sikhs have, the Kanga, the wooden comb they use, the Kara, the iron bracelet they, they wear, the Kachira, the cotton underpants, the underwear, and the Kirpan, which is the iron dagger that the Sikhs carry. So it's emblematic, but also, too, it harkens back to this military time as well. That's right. So Gobind Singh, he's the last of the ten gurus, and Sikhs actually believe that now the scriptures themselves, the Adi Granth, are their guru and will remain their guru forevermore. But the die has been cast. You know, they have taken on this military aspect, and that grows under new leaders, most notably a guy called Bandar Singh Bahadur, who leads these successful campaigns against the Mughal overlords in India until he is captured and executed in 1716. But that doesn't stop them, Mikey. Throughout the 18th century, they rise up and rise again, and for 50 years, they slowly, slowly manage to take control of more and more territory. So much so that by 1799, probably the Sikh's greatest leader, Ranjit Singh, is able to capture the city of Lahore in Punjab for his people, and in 1801, establish the Punjab as an independent state with him as the first ever Sikh Maharaja in India. Okay, folks, so today we're talking about the history of the Sikh religion in India and we've been talking about a lot of men, Paul. You said there'd be a female hero this week. That's right, Mikey. My hero today is a woman, a woman by the name of Matar Kivi. And to understand her story, we really need to go right back to the beginning. So I told you the first guru was Guru Nanak and he was promoting this ethos of peace, equality and harmony rather than the martial prowess that came along later. And he's followed by the second guru, Angad Dev, who follows very much in his footsteps. And it's Angad Dev whom my hero, Mata Kivi, marries. Now Mata Kivi, she's born in 1506. She's actually born to a wealthy family outside of Sikhism. She comes to the religion on her own. She marries the second guru, Angad Dev, but from the very, very beginning, she wants to be involved in the administration and the running of the faith because she realizes that if Sikhism is going to succeed, one of the most important roles to be played will be that of Sikh women, particularly in spreading the religion across India. And the reason why I so admire Matar Kivi as part of this is that she also pushes the notion that all women are equal, which, as you can imagine, the 16th century Punjab... Pretty radical. In fact, in the 16th century, anywhere in the world. That's right, Mikey. So she's looking for a role for herself, but she's also looking for a role for other Sikh women. And she picks up on a tradition which had been started by that first guru, Guru Nanak, because he had initiated a practice of giving meals away to all his followers. Now, to me and you, Mikey, we just call that free food. And, you know, maybe it's just a way of drumming up supporters. But that's really to misunderstand the concept behind it. Because what Guru Nanak wanted to do, he wanted this food, which goes by the name of the Langar, he wants that to transgress any sort of monetary 
ideas of freedom because he wants to base the whole idea of food as one that belongs to God. So when it comes to the point of sitting down and eating, nobody, and of course everybody, has ownership over the food. So Madakivi sees this as a way of spreading and strengthening Sikhism. Very much so, Mikey. She takes over the administration. She throws everything she's got into it, taking great care over the preparation and the production of these meals, so much so that they actually become known as the Matakiviji de Langar, you know, Matakiviji's Langar. And she's instrumental in institutionalising the practice so that these meals can be found in every Sikh temple. And alongside that, she also introduces a key concept of siwa, of service. Because just as the food is for everyone, so everyone should partake in the serving of the food to others. And of course, Mikey, you've got to remember that to do this, she has to go to all the different temples, Sikh temples, all over the Punjab. And I'm assuming that a woman travelling for a purpose like that wasn't really done at the time. Well, that's right, Mikey. You know, in the 16th century Punjab, women under normal circumstances wouldn't even set foot outside their home. So for her to be taking such an active role was a shining light for all the other women in northern India. And the impact, Mikey, has been enormous. You know, these days, no Sikh would ever consider going to the temple and leaving without partaking in this meal, in this langar. And the beautiful thing is it's open not just to Sikhs, but to anybody who's visiting the temple that day. And of course, in Indian society, that's quite a challenge, Mikey, oh, yeah. because you've got the traditional inequality of the caste right. system. Yeah, and it's very much taboo to ever eat with anyone outside your own caste. You know, the Hindu Brahmin have got this long litany of rules about sharing food, about sharing water, you know, particularly the high caste Hindus. But Matakivi, she doesn't just want to challenge this, she wants to break down the barriers. And she knows that these free meals, these langar halls, are going to be her most effective weapon. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty certain all the food that's served in these halls is vegetarian. Now, was that a deliberate move? That's right, Mikey. It's very deliberate. Because, of course, the whole ethos of everyone being able to partake and for the food to be a great leveller, you've got to have food that everybody can eat. So they deliberately choose vegetarian food. There isn't any meat. There isn't any pork. There's nothing that any of the other religions would say no to. Because this all harks back to the original Sikh gurus and their explicit rejection of inequality. In fact, when you go to these temples, Mikey, you'll see that all the visitors are not just sharing the common food, they're also sharing the tables and, of course, the company of the others. And, of course, this legacy still continues to today. That's right. Walk into a Langar Hall today, Mikey, and you will see women, men, rich, poor, high, low. They're all sitting together. They're all eating together. It's very much this idea of the oneness of all humankind. And that wouldn't have happened, Mikey, if it hadn't have been for Matar Kivi, because she is the leading light... She's the one who makes sure that the concept spreads throughout the Sikh world. And it's her legacy that the Langars are still going today in all the Gurudwaras all over India, serving millions of daily curries. And of course, not just in India, but all Sikh temples all over the world. I'm glad you said curry, Paul, because now we're back in my wheelhouse, yes. okay? Because curry, as I think we all know by now, is, is an anglicised form of an, of an Indian Tamil word, curry, just meaning something cooked in sauce. The sauce, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but here's the thing, though. There's archaeological evidence of people on the Indian subcontinent grinding up mustard, fennel, cumin seeds and tamarind pods as far back as 2600 BCE. Wow. Like making what we call a curry paste these days. Yes. So about 4,000 years of really complex 
Republic's food. Now, you mentioned uh, the, the, the moguls before. Mm. Well, when the empire expanded in the 15th century, it goes east and doesn't really invade curries into China, but it goes west and butts up against Persia and mm. Islam. Yes. And a lot of the food traditions from that part of the world become absorbed. Incorporated. Quite frankly, a lot of what we get as takeaway today mm. comes from that period of time. Yes. But you're talking about vegetarian curries. Mm. Now, the Portuguese arrive in Goa in about 1510 as yes. a trading post. Now, they've just come from the Americas. Ah, the New World. Yeah, mate. And they bring a whole bunch of new ingredients into the Indian cuisine. Right. Like potatoes, tomatoes, sure. and most importantly, chilli. Yes. Which is really important if you are serving up vegetarian curries on a daily basis. But, Paul, we all know when it comes to the word curry... It's the Brits that are buying. <laughs> yes. You know, the Brits basically, they loved all spicy food under the name curry. In fact, mate, it's first mentioned in a 1747 cookbook by a woman called Hannah Glass. Right. The Art of Cookery Made Easy. Mm. And it became a massive hit in England. And remember how we were talking about chocolate houses the other week? Yeah. Well, in coffee houses in the early 19th century, that's when the Brits really get a taste for curry. Mm. But also, too... Here's another part of the empire and curry and how it works. Yeah. A whole bunch of men from India were sent to the Caribbean right. to work in the sugar industry as indentured workers, virtually slaves. Right. And that's how curry makes its way to the Caribbean. Right. Now, in Southeast Asia, curry is spread through Indian trade routes. In fact, all the way to Japan. Now, I always assumed that they would have come into place after the Second World War. Mm. But no, it actually goes back to what we were talking about a few weeks ago. Mm. The Meiji period. Yes. The Meiji Restoration. Restoration, yeah. yes. Well, the Japanese were really keen to get British advisors in to build up their navy. Yes. So these officers came from India, these British officers. Um. They brought their taste of curry with them. Mm. And here's the thing. The Japanese described these curries as Yoshuku or Western, ah. which makes them really popular in that whole Meiji Restoration period. Right. Particularly when the army and the navy start eating them a lot. Mm. In fact, all those battles we talked about, well, the Japanese were probably living on curry. The military loved it so much. In fact, even to this day, in the Japanese Navy, every Friday is curry day. Hi, folks, and welcome back. And after my slight diversion into Curry Town, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're back with the Sikhs in India. Now, you've explained the role of Madakivi. You've told us about the Ten Gurus, but just before that, you were talking about the first Sikh Maharaja. Yes. So how does that work out? Right, so you've got Ranjit Singh. He's the Maharaja. He's in charge of his own state, and he's a very, very skillful ruler because he knows that if he's going to be a success, he needs to keep the Muslims and the Hindus on board as well as, obviously, his own Sikhs because at this stage, even though he controls the Punjab, the Sikhs are still in a minority. And unfortunately, that comes back to bite them because when he dies in 1839, the Sikh state very much crumbles. And quite quickly, the Muslim and the Hindu authorities see the opportunity to worm their way back in. Hang on, mate. I'm sensing a power vacuum. Yes. And if we know one thing from history, no one loves a power vacuum like the Brits. That's right. And unfortunately, that's what happens, Mikey. Yeah, the British Empire moves in as well. And in 1845, 1846, you get the first of what we know as the, the Sikh Wars. Now, as we said, you know, the Sikhs are highly militarised by this point, but unfortunately they are defeated and the British take over much of the Sikh territories. There is further resistance and there is a rebellion in 1849, but once this has been defeated conclusively at the Battle of Gujarat, that's the final nail in the coffin. But interestingly, Mikey, almost immediately things seem to swing back in the Sikhs' favour because the Sikhs and the Brits, once those battles are over... 
they discover that they've actually got quite a lot in common and they start to build up a very good relationship. And this is the starting point for that great tradition of the Sikhs serving with such distinction in the British Army and later police forces all over the British Empire. Yeah, but Paul, were they really partners? Well, of course, you know, we're talking the British Empire, we're talking the 19th century. A lot of these partnerships were just an illusion and it didn't take long for this one to crack. In fact, by 1919, it smashed to smithereens with that horrible incident that's gone down in history as the Amritsar massacre. So that's when the British troops go in, murder innocent civilians, and of course most of them, because it's in Amritsar, are Sikhs. And that very much finishes their relationship with the British Raj. And unfortunately, even with the partition of India that comes later, Sikhism on the Indian subcontinent remains in the doldrums. Because when partition does happen, when India and Pakistan split, two main states are the key bones of contention. One is Bengal in the east, which half of which becomes Bangladesh, and the other half is the Punjab. Pakistan wants half of it itself, and the Sikhs, unfortunately, there's too few of them. They're unable to demand their own stake. They're unable to counter Pakistan's claim, and half of the Punjab, including the great city of Lahore, does move over into Pakistan. And as you can imagine, the Sikhs feel very let down by this. Yeah, they think they've been very badly treated. And look, it soon becomes pretty clear they don't have much choice but to join India, but they do so very reluctantly. And unfortunately, when it comes to the practicalities of partition, when you're splitting Punjab down the middle, of course, you get that mass crossing of the border, communities being exchanged. And again and again, up and down that border, these exchanges turn violent, so violent, in fact, Mikey, you get these communal massacres of people going one way or the other, resulting in appalling losses of life. So after the petitioning, we're seeing Sikhism at its lowest ebb. Well, yes, as far as they're concerned, yeah, they've lost a lot of privileges. Physically, they've lost a lot of land, both as individuals and an institution, and there is a definite feeling of deep discontent. Now, you know, India does try to appease them in 1966 it actually manipulates the borders of Punjab again so that it splits off some parts so that the remaining rump if you like might the rump stake actually does have a Sikh majority but really that's not enough and at this stage many Sikhs emigrate but sadly that's not the end of it is it no Mikey in the 60s and 70s is probably political discontent but by the 1980s it's turning into real violence there's a guy called John Ail Singh Binder Anwale, and he's like a, a Sikh preacher and he's a leader. He says he's re representing all the disaffected Sikhs in the country. And in 1983, Binder Anwale and his closest followers, they take refuge in the Golden Temple complex there, that holy of holy temples in Amritsar. And in June 1984, the Indian government launches troops against the temple as part of Operation Blue Star. Yeah, I remember this. That's right. They go in all guns blazing. They attack the temple. Many are killed. And of course, several of the buildings are very badly damaged. And in some ways, Mikey, that's just as significant as the death toll. Because now Sikhs everywhere, militant or non-militant, they're infuriated and they blame the Indian Prime Minister at the time, Indira Gandhi. They say she is deliberately persecuting the followers of the Sikh faith. And that, of course, leads to October 1984, when Indiri Gandhi is assassinated by two of her own bodyguards 
And both those men were Sikhs. That's right, Mikey, and no prizes for guessing. It launches four days of massive anti-Sikh rioting all over the country. You know, the government figures say that about 2,700 people were killed, mostly Sikhs. But really, newspapers and human rights groups, they'll tell you the death toll was closer to 10, 15,000. And unfortunately, that leads to a second wave of mass emigration again. And we can say that all around the world today. But, mate, is there a chance of the Sikhs ever having their own state again? Well, look, not really, Mikey. You know, the chances of India or Pakistan giving back their parts of the Punjab are very small. In fact, it'd probably take the collapse or the breakup of the whole Indian state for a Sikh-controlled territory to emerge again. But, you know, look, as you said in the China episode, it's not impossible for these enormous conglomerations to fracture. But it's not going to happen anytime soon. No, it's not on the immediate horizon. But the good news is what is definitely happening today and what will continue is the great tradition of the langar that Matar Kivi built up so successfully over 500 years ago. And in fact, if you go to the Golden Temple today, Mikey, you'll see over 100,000 people every day being fed. You know, on special occasions, apparently it's almost double. It's one of the largest, if not the largest, free kitchen anywhere in the world. Over 100,000 meals a day. That's going to take a pretty big shopping list, mate. Yeah, well, that's right, Mikey. Apparently, you've got 7,000 kilograms of wheat flour, 1,200 kilograms of rice, 1,300 kilograms of lentils to go into the dal, a lentil soup, 500 kilograms of ghee, and 200,000 rotis every day being served. They reckon that's over one and a half tonnes of dal, but they need it, Mikey, because they make sure that no one ever goes hungry. Everybody gets a hot meal, regardless of caste or creed or religion. Men and women sitting down in those great halls to eat together. And just as importantly, Mikey, Matakivi's other tradition, that concept of siwar, of service, is also still very much fundamental. So if you do go to the Golden Temple, you'll see not just the 450 staff members, but hundreds of volunteers washing the plates. They reckon there's about 300,000 plates, washing the spoons, washing the bowls, and serving the meals to their fellow man. And I'm assuming that this costs a lot of money to do. That's right, the budget runs into the millions, Mikey, but the nice thing is it's all taken care of by donations, either from those who are going to worship at the temple itself, visitors who come to share the experience, not to mention contributions from Sikh communities all over the world. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media, Twitter, Facebook, Insta, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And wherever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment on whichever platform you happen to use. It's always good to get your feedback. Yes, keep it all coming, lots of fun. And lots of maps. <laughs> and lots of new guests to look forward to. Paulie, we've got guests galore, each with their very own hero and howler. <laughs>